This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We are definitely seeing more and more companies get together some big deals that we've seen, I feel like, over the last couple of weeks, couple of months, and definitely this morning, BAM, AbbVie, agreeing to pay $63 billion for rival drug maker Allergan. It's the latest merger in an industry where some of the biggest companies have been willing to pay a big premium to resolve questions about their growth prospects. AbbVie shares, though, folks, not surprising as an acquirer, but it is down a lot, down almost 16% as we speak. Allergan, it's getting crushed. <laughs> crushed is a good word. Allergan is the target. No surprise to see it up about 20 Rebecca Spaulding is biotech reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Rebecca, you thought, oh, it's going to be a lazy Tuesday, and then it's like, bam. Exactly. I woke up this morning to this headline and thought, oh boy, it's we're in for a big one. So th- the thing about this story is that Avi needs to do something. Investors have known that. It's the, usually the first call, the first question that comes up on earnings. What are you going to do when Humira, the best-selling drug in the world, goes away? How are you going to fill this $18 billion revenue hole? So it's really Huge. not surprising that Avi would want to do something. I think what caught investors off guard is that they're spending $63 billion dollars to buy Allergan, which in many ways is facing some of the same concerns that AbbVie is. They have Botox, which is their big seller, and investors, their investors are worried, well, what else does Allergan have? So it, it's kind of a similar story in a way, which is why you might see Abby investors a little skittish this morning. All right. So Max Neeson, opine for us. What do you make of this? When you saw this come across, you know the backstory uh, that Rebecca just laid out so nicely. What do you make of it? And are investors calling it right here? I I was most of all surprised uh, that it was this deal and this set of companies because of exactly the issues that, that Rebecca just mentioned. You know, you need to fill that $18 billion hole. Botox is projected to generate, you know, about $4 $4 billion, a little bit more than that in sales by then. But is that actually going to be there? Mm. And what else is at Allergan is durable? I think the thing that really struck me when I was on the deal call today was that AbbVie basically said, we basically have none of their pipeline in our model going forward. If anything that we get from that is a bonus. So they're kind of counting on this kind of durable, one durable asset. And, you know, the medical aesthetics business, things like coal sculpting, um, other other businesses that aren't kind of subject to the same patent. So you're drug talking like the whole issues. world of dermatology that yeah, has just that exploded. Kind of I feel like in the last ten years, in particular, and I mean, Allergan has other things beyond Botox. They do, but the the it's not as appealing, I think, to yeah. investors. They they've kind of had the strategy where instead of internally developing R and D capabilities and assets, they go out and grab them, and their track record has been pretty dismal. That, that's one of the reasons that their share price has been so depressed and, and AbbVie was able to kind of snatch them up at a, a price that's well below where they were trading just a couple of years ago. So that's the appealing part, those those dur- durable, mm-hmm. differentiated assets that kind of, you know, don't leave them quite as reliant on Humira. But uh, I, I'm not sure if it's going to be enough to, to drive growth 
once they finally kind of have that big yeah. competitive Yeah, Allergan was up once near like 350 a share. Right. It's like really remarkable. And so, Rebecca, yeah. come on back in because and help us understand what we may see as we go forward in this market because as – Carol pointed out we've had some big deals already in this general space. More deal-making to be done. Will this spur or deter? You know, it's really interesting because I think investors obviously today are thinking about the Bristol Celgene news we got earlier this mm-hmm. year. Uh, but what's interesting about that deal is it faced a lot of the same concerns. Celgene has one big drug, and their investors were worried, well, what else do you have? What's interesting, as Max pointed out, is Bristol was sure to highlight, hey, this deal isn't about that one drug. It's about the pipeline. It's about the innovation. It's about what's coming. Today, AbbVie said, this isn't about the pipeline. This is about the cash. This is about the cash on day one. Uh, the nice thing about dermatology, as you as you brought up, Carol, is that it's a cash business. Yeah. And so, and you often know. it's beyond like the the realm, right, mm-hmm. of insurance coverage. It's just people go in and they pay cash yeah. or credits or whatever, but they just do it. Exactly. And it, we should note that Avi has gotten burned by buying some of these pie in the sky biotech companies. Mm-hmm. They bought a company called Stemcentrics a few years ago. They had to write that down. So with Allergan, you're getting a sure thing. Uh, that might be a good thing. That might be a bad thing, depending well, on which investors you're talking to. How, how much longer, though, is Botox, you know, protected under, um, you know, a cop- not copyright, I'm thinking, intellectual property yeah, protection? Yeah, so, so Botox is a, a pretty unique product in that sense. There are other competing similar toxins. Patents, thank you. Um, they, they've been around for a while. But actually replicating it, yeah. it's specifically doing the equivalent of a, a biosimilar like you're going to get for Humira for Botox is an incredibly difficult problem. Mm. So there Didn't are, we do a story in the magazine that talks yeah, specifically there, there like, right, back, it was fascinating yeah. about like how much it's protected and I don't think a lot of people know like the secret sauce kind of. Yeah, so that that's I think one of the appeals for Abby. No one knows better um, the kind of difficulty of, of products right. that might, might not be durable over the long run. But there is some question uh, as to whether a new generation of products, one from a biotech called Evilus, another from one called Revance. The latter one is a potentially longer duration product. So Botox has been kind of this unchallenged king of this, this industry for a long time. Allergan's executed really well, both in aesthetics and for the, the medical uses. Uh, but will that last into 2023? Right. That That's yeah. really going to be the big swing factor. So Rebecca, going to give you the last word in the last 30 seconds. Your biotech friends up in Boston, they're happy uh, about this deal? Do they feel like uh, maybe there's someone out there for me? Well, what's interesting is we've really seen a sea change in some of the deals getting done. If companies want to buy other companies that have products on the market. It sounds obvious, but in biotech, having a product on the market is not a trivial matter. Uh, so we've seen this sort of sea change from buying these preclinical, cool science companies that are very inspiring but may or may not make it right. to companies that have cash. Uh, that's happened over the past year. And I'm just going to say, Teva Pharmaceuticals moving, Endo International, they're all rallying on this yeah. news. So everybody's kind of jockeying potentially for position. Great stuff. Rebecca Spalding, biotech reporter for Bloomberg, usually based in Boston, here with us in New York. And Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist, also with us in New York. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So let's move to the topic of U.S.-China trade. Those negotiations ongoing. President Trump, President Xi set to meet each other this weekend. We get the latest from Sarah McGregor, U.S. economic policy team leader. She joins us from our L.A. bureau out there on the West Coast. Sarah, always good to have you with us. 
Thank you. All right. So what's the latest? Because one of the things we keep looking at is more tariffs coming. Are they not? And who's going to decide and when? So the latest that we're hearing and we just reported is that the U.S. is willing, it's seriously considering suspending this next round of tariffs, the the new tariffs that would be applied to $300 billion of Chinese goods while they prepare to to talk with China a bit more about resuming trade negotiations. This would be obviously a huge win for businesses and lawmakers and a lot of other people who have been against this next round of tariffs. We just had uh, a public hearing in Washington last week about um, you know the, the prospect of putting these extra tariffs on China, essentially every good that's coming in from China. And it's clear, it's almost unanimous that business from Apple to, to the small mom and pop shops see that it as a huge cost for them and something that could um, prevent them from expanding their businesses or adding new jobs and just create a whole lot of new uncertainty. So the, what we're hearing, basically the bottom line is that the U.S. is willing to suspend these additional tariffs while they try and figure out these trade talks, um, if they can kick them back up again or not. Well, and what's interesting, and I know Sean Don and one of your colleagues, you know, here at Bloomberg also put out a story and just talked about how this is spreading. It's not just being felt here in the United States or over in China, but you're taking a look at imports going into other countries, Chinese imports to Japan, South Korea, the U.S. They all fell sharply from a year earlier. So we're seeing, you know, some dislocation in terms of the normal trade flows. Some may say maybe that's not a bad thing. I don't know. But nonetheless, it shows it's a global impact. Absolutely. You know, I think we were surprised. We were talking about earlier in the year, the the World Bank, let's say, cut its um, forecast for global growth, but it left it unchanged for the U.S. and China. And you kind of wonder if they're in a trade war, um, you know, and shipments are being affected between those two countries. Why why is their um, growth estimate not going down? But, you know, we, we hear from people like uh, the Fed's Bullard today who was saying there's a lot more angst in other countries from this trade war and the ricochet factors that are hitting them than, than the U.S. and China right now, the world's two biggest economies that can probably withstand a bit more than, than the smaller ones from this disruption. And so, you know, I, I think that is sort of, um, you know, it'll be sort of symbolic that at this G20 meeting that if she and Trump are able to meet and come up at least again with a temporary truce, it will definitely be a sigh of relief for the other leaders in, in those G20 countries and, and elsewhere. Right, because as you point out in some of your reporting, Sarah, you and your team, you know, this is this is escalating. This has been escalating between the, the Chinese and the U.S. This isn't just the U.S. taking aim at China. This is China retaliating. And both of these countries, you know, really digging in. We've talked with Sean Donnan a lot about this, who I believe is on his way to Osaka right now. You know, this idea that each side, we talked to Andy Brown about this as right. well. Each side is really uh, ratcheting this up. It, it's hard to think that come this weekend, we're going to see she and Trump, you know, do a little bro hug and just say like, yeah, we're good. Absolutely. You know, we might get the tweet from Trump saying he's such good friends with Xi Jinping and he wants to get along. But, you know, it, as it as it starts to unroll again more, it just seems like they, they have these meetings. We look at Buenos Aires in December when they agreed on this first tariff truce that was extended several times. But in the end, Trump raised tariffs on this $200 billion right. of goods. He doubled them. And so, you know, what what can happen here at the at the G20, there might be some personal connection between the two leaders where they might agree, um, you know, to just keep talking. But ultimately, there is no deal yet there. You know, the U.S. says China reneged on some draft promises to enshrine into law to codify changes so they can be sure that China's serious this time. It's going to make these IP theft, um, you know, secure some some things related to this. And so I, I think, you know, what happens is important at the G20 is if it doesn't escalate, that's very important. But this just means more uncertainty down the road. 
Well, and I also do wonder, and you know, we're also impatient. It's like trade deals are not easy. They're complicated. And in terms of what maybe both sides are pushing for, we're talking about maybe creating a trade deal that's, you know, taking us into the next, I don't know, 10 years or something, right? Rethinking the relationship and rethinking. I thought Andy Brown was so smart yesterday in terms of thinking about, you know, how we look at China, that they're really not a developing nation anymore in terms of uh, their ambitions and their industrial policy. And so, you know, we're talking about a different type of trade agreement, Sarah, that needs to be created. And I think a lot of people from the business community may not like the tactics that are going on right now, but agree that something has to be changed. Just got about 30 seconds. Absolutely. And that's how China's trying to assert itself in these talks. And I think why it's extra difficult to get a deal. China's talking about a balanced relationship. It wants something from the U.S. It knows it has a lot to give at this point. It's no longer just the factory of the world. It's becoming, you know, it's a superpower with all sorts of tech development. And it's saying things like, you know, fine, if we can't get our parts, you're going to blacklist us for parts, um, you know, for our 5G networks, for our big tech companies, we'll do it ourselves. So, right. It's, um, yeah, it's a whole new world. But right. it also means intellectual property. Respect ours if you want us to respect yours, right? There's a lot of back and forth here. A lot to go before we get to the weekend, and certainly will be impactful what those two gentlemen agree to or don't. Sarah McGregor, U.S. Economic Policy Team leaders, Leader for Bloomberg, joining us from L.A. We're going to talk a little bit about a long-short strategy. Our next guest manages the Thornburg Long-Short Equity Fund. Connor Brown, back with us, Portfolio Manager at Thornburg Investment Management. Roughly $44 billion in assets under management, based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you here. Good to be here. How do you feel about the investment environment right now? Um, we see it pretty bifurcated, actually. So we're seeing today... Could be long short then. Yeah, we think so. <laughs> we think it creates lots of opportunities. Uh, we're seeing NASDAQ off a percent and a half today, S&P in the middle down 90 bips, uh, Russell 1000 value, so a measure of value investments down only 30 bips. We wouldn't be surprised to see a lot more days like this. Um, we see growth stocks, lots of companies that are not that profitable trading at very high valuations, and value stocks trading much cheaper. So we think that creates some opportunity. Well, you'd probably uh, like more days like this, especially when you own Allergan, right? Yeah. I mean, so that was uh, welcome news this morning, uh, I would imagine. Absolutely, yeah. Did you see that coming? I mean, was that part of the investment thesis here that this was a takeout? Or what, w- what was your thinking getting into that name initially? Um, so most important was that we thought the business is actually good business, and it was trading very cheaply. So mm-hmm. we think that Botox and aesthetics make up about half of the profits of Allergan. Those businesses are growing for them, and um, they're different than healthcare. Um, there's no drug price regulation. It's mo- mostly cash pay. There's not yeah. insurance. It's dermatology it's yeah. is cosmetic. Yeah. That, but, it, but it is. It's interesting. Our, our Max Neeson, when he walked out, because I was talking about how I've talked to a lot of doctors who use it for... Parkinson's patients, you know, to relax muscles, migraines, and so on and so forth. He said the medical component of Allergan is actually more than the dermatological. Yeah, and growing. So so both um, Botox and Juvederm are growing really nicely, especially in the U.S. So at seven and a half times earnings, which is where the company was trading when we bought and where it was trading yesterday before the deal was announced, we think that you're getting 
a good business, which is worth 15 times earnings at half of profits, that justifies the whole value of the business. The other half we think you get for free. So we're, we're very surprised by the AbbVie stock price reaction. Well, that's what we want to ask you because Jason and I had that discussion with a couple of our reporters earlier that it looks like, you know, the feeling was you're buying Allergan. That's kind of a really one big product uh, that you're just buying that. You're not buying a pipeline. And yet what you're saying is it's a good it's a good product to have, and it certainly is generating a lot of cash. So I, I suppose AbbVie shareholders would have liked something um, that added to uh, future pipeline, yeah. especially around oncology. Um, this is more of a financial engineering deal, but we think it's a really good financial engineering deal. So we're digging into AbbVie. We don't own it right now, but this might be an opportunity to buy some AbbVie shares. And, Bo- and Botox not an easy thing to duplicate. No, it's we don't think so. not an easy thing to I, do. We think if you're injecting toxins into your face, you probably want to go with the brand that you know. <laughs> right. right, right. Well, it's, there's it's not, not even like, a- I'll take the I'll take the sort of like <laughs> cheaper version. Yeah. version. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the point is the access to those toxins, you can't just easily get them. I think they're government controlled to some extent. That's so right, yeah. the access, the pipeline. All right, you guys are having fun and I'm trying to be serious. Okay. <laughs> As usual. As usual. Never having fun. Going to have to turn this car around. Exactly. Um, What else do you like? Let's talk about some other names because Gilead Science is also playing within that healthcare space. Once again, in this market, we're seeing some unprofitable, high-growth companies without even really a plan to turn to profitability, trading at really high multiples. You hear enterprise value to sales multiples talked about all of the time in this market in ways that we think are unjustified. On the other side, even with the S&P at all-time highs, there's a whole bunch of businesses that we think are being left for dead. So Allergan at seven and change times uh, uh, earnings just yesterday. Uh, Gilead Sciences, uh, where Hep C for them, Hepatitis C, they brought a cure that grew a lot and has declined a lot. That's now a much smaller portion of profits. Their HIV business has grown really nicely throughout. That's that's the main driver of earnings out into the future. About, there, it's, I'm just looking at the forward-looking PE. One, just one metric, but not even quite 10. Yeah, very cheap. And we think we think in 21, they can do $10 in earnings relative to sell-side estimates of uh, around $7. So it, that $10 in earnings less than seven times out a couple of years, we think it looks very interesting here. Revenues, though, have been on the decline. Does that bother you at all? So, so at peak hepatitis C revenues for them, that made up the vast majority of gross profit Today, that's down to less than 10% of gross profits. Now we'll be able to see the inflection as HIV revenues and profits okay. drive overall profits. Uh, talk to us about Comcast. That's a name. You know, We talk about the media space. Yeah. We talk about streaming. We talk about linear TV and all of those things that may be now or uh, in the future. Why do you like Comcast here? It's not because it's not a bet on linear television, actually, yeah. at Comcast. That's a big business for them, but they pay a lot for the content, so that's not their most profitable business. What we're really excited about is their broadband business, mm-hmm. um, getting data into households in the U.S. We think cable is competitively advantaged against DSL, which is an important part of our process at Thornburg. And... Um, they they seem particularly well positioned. The last thing allowed on Comcast is we really like the fiber investment they're making. So they're taking fiber closer to households, right. and that we think could be used uh, for data offload and future five G wireless networks. Um, and obviously, sorry, I mean that was a stock that obviously people were kicking around a little bit 
back in the bidding war for Fox assets. They didn't come out on the right side. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting, the content piece of that, too. Yeah, I think we won by not winning Yes, in yeah. the case of that bidding war. So that actually was when we got interested in the stock. Hmm. It came under tremendous pressure while they and Disney were fighting for Fox assets. Um, we did get B-Sky, which, frankly, we don't love as an asset uh, for Comcast. Uh, but um, to be able to focus more on the data and broadband business, not to have to worry about the Fox content assets, we think is a good outcome for Comcast shareholders. Are you more long or more short? So we're always a bit more long than we are short, but we always have a lot of short exposure on, and we're a bit different in Thornburg Long Short Equity. We're all single name stocks short, so all single names, which is pretty different, especially in the mutual fund space. Zillow Group is another one. You're not short on it. You're long it. We're long it, yeah. We're pretty excited about the opportunity (laughs) to buy and sell homes to consumers, make that process easier. But even if the economy slows down, what if everybody's right and we're headed for a recession? Does it matter? Well, who's who's right? Bond investors or stock investors? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right? We don't know, yeah. right? We're at that interesting kind of intersection that we're not quite sure where we are. And do you worry about Zillow's margins because they are getting more into the actual buying and selling rather yeah. than just the information, right? We're, we're more focused on the incremental profitability okay. they can drive through that business. And importantly through selling leads to real estate agents, which is their business. That was their business before they started buying homes. When you get to see a house before it's listed to sell, which they do through their Zillow offers business, they say, oh, do you want a price from Zillow? And maybe the homeowner says, no, that's too low. Zillow can now say, hey, why don't we introduce you to a real estate agent who can get you a better price? So they have another revenue stream to help drive profitability even if actually selling the home is lower lower margin. And in that case, they're getting paid by the realtor, not the homeowner. That's I mean, been their like, business, right, yeah, yeah, to buy, to sell real estate leads to real estate agents. Right. Really cool segment. Thank you so much. Thanks yeah. for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Connor Always Brown. good to see him. Yeah, absolutely. Connor Brown, he's portfolio manager at Thornburg Investment Management, $44 billion in assets under manager, based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yes. Do you think that's why he's smart? Uh, yeah. He's no, so I- smart and, like, chill. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, so. you know, and he also gets to see Julia Roberts occasionally. Right. Actually brought me a note from her. Well, not exactly. Right. <laughs> but it still made my day. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Our next guest has a take on the dogs of the Dow theory and wrapped it into an ETF. Joe Barato is CEO at Arrow Investment Advisors uh, on the phone from Laurel, Maryland. Joe, good to have you here with Jason and myself. So let's talk a little bit about where we are in the market cycle. You say it looks like stocks appear to be in a late market cycle. Explain that. Well, you know, we, we have this research that we've put out and we've been studying the, uh, I'm a student of history, so we, we've been putting out research for a long time now talking about market tops. And, and we think that in um, June of 2018, the U.S. equity market uh, topped out relative to the U.S. international markets. We Last time we saw that was in um, uh, December of 2000, which was around the time of uh, the last really great U.S. equity run. So when you enter a period of time where there's international strength, it typically runs for very long periods of time. And while this has been a great domestic market, 
uh, we we've been encouraging investors and advisors that we we work with to you know start expanding the horizons to the international markets because when you are in a period of international strength, it's not you know one or two years. You, you could be going you know like a hundred and over a hundred months over a period of time where the the foreign markets, international countries, are dramatically outperforming. To give you an example, from December of two thousand. Uh, to October of 2009, the international country average was about 11% average annual return. The domestic market was negative 1.7. So compared to where we are and have been since 2009 to 2018, where the international country average was 4%, domestic market was 14%. We're we're going to we're starting to see that shift, and we and, and that's something that I think has started happening last year. So it's slowly playing out, and we think it's an opportunity for investors to think about diversifying their international exposure into something that's going to be hunting at that level. All right, so Joe, you certainly get points for one of the more inventive ETF names that we've heard, <laughs> Dogs of the World. The ticker is Dogs. Congrats, by the way, on just lining that up. That's very impressive. Uh, but talk to us about that. I mean, you've talked about this international piece, but you know, Dogs of the Dow, that's something that, that people have talked about before as a strategy. But you expanded, as you say, to a global uh, perspective. How do you pick here? Well, it's, 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 you know, it's, it, look, we've been building ETFs and, you know, going back to my years at Ridex when we built the RSP equal weight S&P 500, which was an innovation. We think this is another type of innovation. We're, we're hunting at the country level. We basically are ranking countries uh, on an annual basis, looking for the worst performers. And we think things will revert to their mean, which is a very strong, you know, statistical anomaly. Um, what you're seeing here is uh, a basket made up of Argentina, Greece, Mexico, Pakistan, and Turkey, um, all deep value uh, countries. So when you're, you're buying things that have been beaten up pretty badly, whether it's gone through some ter- type of currency devaluation or just in internal uh, parameters for the different sectors. And, you know, some of the strongest runners this year are Greek banks, uh, and, and Argentina's had a very nice run. And e- even in the last month or so, Turkey's been on a very strong run. So, you know, places where investors will never go on their own individually. So we wanted to give people a package solution that was always looking for deep value. And this also throws off a very nice yield for investors as well. We certainly are looking for the upside. This will throw out the winners. And at some point, you know, we have another fund that we created that, that looks for country momentum. So we, we, we kind of built a yin and yang in, in giving people exposure to hunt at that country level. No different than what investors try to do at hunting at the sector level domestically. So, okay. So I'm curious. All right. So it's the worst performing, um, you know, in terms of some of the countries. So give me an idea of who's in that index right now. So it, so it changes, correct? It will change annually. The countries will rotate around on an annual basis. So we do hold, There's we, we, we based it off of research that was done by a professor at University of Albany. Um, so it's an annual reset. We hold the countries for a year, and then we re-evaluate among a universe of 41 countries. We'll find the worst performers. Um, when we look at the countries in aggregate against all the other countries they're measured against, um, then we build a basket of securities inside each of those um, each of those prospective countries to give you a representation that will give you at least 70 to 80 percent of the market movement of that country. 
And so how does this hold up in a world that's, I think it's fair to say, unstable, uneven, unpredictable? I mean, you know, we're going into a G20 like we've never seen before uh, this weekend. Do you worry at all that this instability, largely introduced by the United States, starts to disrupt your underlying thesis here? Or does it help it ultimately? No, I mean, look, the reality is when when you see things, you know, there are a lot of factors that drive international markets, whether it's the declining dollar or inflation on the rise. Um, you, you can see the spreads on commodities when you start to see commodity prices on the rise. That's very good for the international markets. Um, you know, and, and, that, and the paradigm that's different now is that U.S. is much more independent on, on the commodity side when it comes to its our, our own oil. So the, those are the unknowns about what's going to happen domestically. The, the thing that we believe is that, you know, when you do start seeing unrest, there are a lot of countries um, right. that you want to look for that are not highly correlated to the core international products that are out there that are highly correlated to the domestic markets. Hey, so Joe, the key is, yes. I just, if I can just jump in, because we just have about 45 seconds left. Sorry. I have someone, no, 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 it's okay. But someone's tweeting at me and they're saying, you know, what will, we're so G20 focused. So what will the G20 members do to alter the current path towards a first world, meaning U.S. and others, and a second world, China, Russia, et cetera, kind of tech environment. Are you beginning to think about about that and what it means in terms of potentially a world split in two? Well, I mean, it's a deep, that's a deep thought. And, and uh, you know, I think, look, those are factors that will play out when it comes to the tech side. And the reality is in our strategy, which is held up very nicely, um, beating about, you know, since we've launched the product, uh, I think it's beating like 80% of all international products. You know, and last year we were in Qatar, uh, this year, our you know Argentina is our, is our largest whole, you know country exposure. Mm-hmm. We have a large exposure to financial services. Um, so you know we saw last year Israel in the portfolio where, where Israel is driven by technology. Um, so we are not really concerned about necessarily the sector play that's going on inside. We think that's naturally going to play out. Um, it doesn't mean that that won't be a factor. You know, at some point, we'll, you know, we're stu- we are seeing that shift. We're seeing more defensive plays that are coming into the overall portfolio. And that's the underlying nature of maybe the countries that we have exposure to. Going to leave it on that note. Joe Barato, thank you so much. He is Chief Executive Officer at Arrow Investment Advisors, joining us on the phone from Laurel, Maryland. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.